Dave, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Absolutely loud and clear. All right, let's just jump into this. I, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, this has been long overdue. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being uh, a guest on this podcast. But you know what, Dave, I just want this to be two friends talking about um, something big coming up on Thursday. So right, at, right off the bat, can you can you tell us what's going to happen on November 14th? On November 14th, Thursday, um, my new book, Daring to Think Again, is going to launch and it's going to go live on Amazon. Dot com and the subtitle is restoring jesus original challenge to the faith that we think we know and the idea here is is that our faith christianity has become sort of a set piece it's become um, something that is etched in what we believe just intellectually factually theologically uh, it has become something that is no longer able to be questioned it's sort of set in stone it's become uh, the, the church's doctrine and theology for a couple thousand years. And yet what Jesus is really telling us to do is to question everything. When the rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. That translates to us as modern Westerners as letting go of selling everything we think we know, everything we cling to for support and for survival and embracing something brand new that we could not even fit into our existing world. And so the book is an exploration of that. What does that look like? Is that really what Jesus said? What are the implications if we do that? And what does that look like to 12 core issues surrounding our faith, doctrine, and everyday life? What does it change? Yes. And why do you think it is so hard for us, for people to to sell everything, or as you were alluding to, uh, giving up that dogmatic theology. Why do we get so comfortable in, in, in like, sort of like, here's my, here's my systematic theology. Like I'm not giving <laughs> God is in my box. What's behind that? Well, there's, there's a couple of things, you know, first thing, what we're talking about here is a worldview. And right. the truth of the matter is, is that none of us perceive reality directly. What we're doing is, is that we are looking through a filter. Everything that we think we know, everything that we've been taught, everything that from our parents and our family of origin up to our institutions, schools, churches, media, has shown us that life looks this particular way. And so all we see of reality is what actually passes through that filter. How do you sell that filter? How do you get rid of that? It isn't even looked at as a... As a a view of something is looked at as the very ground that we walk on, the very air that we breathe. And so we don't question it anymore. The other thing is, is that is a lot of fear driving questioning everything that we think we know. Because as soon as we go outside the box, as soon as we leave the herd, that's where we feel vulnerable. That's where we've been told that we'll be feeling vulnerable. And the church has done a pretty good job of telling us that if we stray from the accepted orthodoxy, then we'll be led into error and we're prey to all sorts of bad outcomes, including losing our salvation for them. So there's, sure. there's a lot tied up in this. Yes. So uh, for a second here, I want to, I want to back up for a little bit. So, so that people can know um, the, the, I think I got like two listeners 
It's like my, my parents and, you know, my brother and sisters, <laughs> but for them, I want them to know who you are, but, um, they, I, I, I got my copy here, but, uh, uh November 14th, I'll be getting a copy from uh, Amazon, but I got the print out here and, and how I read, I just, I can't help, but just, I read with, Oh, my, look at you. Yeah. That's, that's great. how I read. So I destroy all my books. Uh, people don't like to borrow my books because there's so much writing. But before I get to that, um, I want to tell everybody how I found you. So I, I'm I'm in the business of of recovery and redemption. You know, I like to be like Jesus. Uh, Luke, what is it? Luke 14 as he has come to set the captives free. And so I, I got into uh, deliverance ministry, if I, if I can use that, or uh, recovery. Um, probably about right, right around 2013, 14. And uh, I was able to see God uh, restore people right before my eyes, uh, confess things that had never been confessed before. And, and so I, I decided to pursue um, a terminal degree, uh, a doctorate. And, and the, the title of my dissertation is a compassionate response. I'm still working on the title, but it's a compassionate response to service members uh, suffering from destructive behaviors and how, how they can find lasting freedom from those destructive behaviors. So I, I uh, lived in Virginia. At first it was Hawaii when I started this, and then, then Rhode Island, and then Virginia. And so I started getting into things like uh, Celebrate Recovery. And uh, as an ethno eth ethnographic researcher, I was participating and um, taking a lot of field notes uh, for my own brokenness as well, not just as a, as a researcher, but like, I had, I got in touch with my, my very broken past. And then I came to California and I'm looking up, uh, recovery ministries and I'm looking up celebrate recovery and then bam, uh, the effect popped up. And so I'm reading on the website. I went to the effect. I forgot how it actually came up, but I said, Oh my gosh, this is a local church where their whole existence is, uh, emotional recovery and spiritual transformation. And so I'd never seen anything like it before. Can you just tell us how, how did the effect come about and, and why is it there's like nothing else like it? Why, why are, are, are you the only ones with that kind of model as, as far as I know in my research? Yeah, we may not be the only ones, but we're, we're yeah. certainly in the minority and, and we're certainly rare as far as, as we can tell. Um, the, the genesis of it was is that uh, I had been studying Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view, mm. which really changes the, the way that we look at, at our theology and look at, at the practices of our faith. If we're going to look at Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, everything is going to be very practical. It's not going to be dealing Okay, now I think we're back in the internet. Okay. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. All right. So when we look at Jesus from this, this first century or Hebrew point of view, we're looking at very concrete steps and ways of living life. When we started the effect, we started, there was, there was three co-founders. Two of them were in Alcoholic Anonymous program and okay. Narcotics Anonymous program. So they were already working from a recovery point of view. I didn't have that background but I got pulled in really fast and I fell in love with the recovery community because the recovery community was a group that was already on the edge. They had already lost much of what life has to offer and allows us to keep playing 
house, you know, keep um, putting up a face that we're okay. They had been stripped of all of that. They had already accepted, not willingly, Jesus' uh, first challenge to let go of everything that they were clinging to. So they were at the yes. point of possible change. And that's what I was looking for in the community church setting and really couldn't find people that were at that point where they were just ready to do something completely different because that was the only avenue left open to them. And so it was a natural segue for us. And the reason that the effect existed in those first days and still does was that we existed to serve that recovery community. Yes. But what I found right away was that everybody's recovering from something. Yes. I didn't have a substance of these background, but I realized that what I was dealing with had the same dynamics, the same shape to it, and the same solution, which was this way back home, this way back to Father that Jesus was telling us. And so the effect originally existed as a recovery ministry, which also worshiped together. So it kind of took the idea of a community yes. church and turned it on its head. It was no longer about what happened on Sundays, but what we did all week long to try to bring people on this journey. Does that, does that uh, sort of make sense and help? You know, in the 12 oh, yeah. cents that we've been doing this, we, we have moved and changed and more, but that core has never really left us. Uh, even though now we minister to as many quote-unquote normies, those who are not substance abuse sufferers, um, but the way through is always the same. Yes. It's this understanding of Jesus in this concrete way mixed with contemplative spirituality that brings us into an experience that changes everything. Absolutely. You know, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said uh, as I used to think those guys are the addicts. They have these addictions. And then I realized the Holy Spirit introduced me to the fact that I'm a sinner's anonymous. Uh, <laughs> I, I should, I should start sinner's anonymous for, for those in recovery from the brokenness of humanity those of us who are, are feeling the effects of, you know, the shattered shalom. And um, so I, I find like, I, I, when I started my podcast, I, I originally called it um, confessions of a of recovering church kid and uh, growing up with, with, um, you know, I, I used to say this a lot, but um Jesus was like kind of my savior, but he wasn't really my savior. And so um, it wasn't until I gave up everything. And then I, uh, I became completely secret free with my wife. Uh, and, and that night he became my, my, my true savior. So I like everything you're saying. Um, and let's, so let's talk about uh, daring to think again. And uh, could you talk about at the outset of your book, you talk about Jesus' original challenge to his hearers. What is Jesus' original challenge? The original challenge is to question everything, question everything that you think you know. Jesus makes these really, really strange statements to our ears. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to be able to hate your father and mother. Hate your father and mother, your sister, your brother, your children, and even your own life. Uh, he tells someone who wants to bury his father and, and mother first, his parents, before he follows Jesus, let the dead bury the dead. He says to pick up your cross daily and follow me. All of these statements make no sense to our ears until we understand them from this point of view. What he's trying to get us to do is to take a look at everything that we have placed our security upon. 
that we have learned to trust as our way through life, which also comprises the box within and the filter within which we see life. If we're going to get to the freedom that Jesus is talking about, because he says, if you follow me, if you really follow what I'm saying here, if you follow the shape of my journey, you're going to know a truth that's going to make you free. That freedom is only available once we get to the other side of having placed all our eggs in this particular basket. Now, when he says, hate your father and mother, he doesn't mean the way we think of hating. That word in Aramaic means to prefer less. In other words, this is where all of your your trust is placed. You need to open up and see that there's something else here. Unfortunately, it's not visible the way your family is. But if you can place your trust here and move beyond that, see another opening, another larger possibility, then uh, there's going to be something that you can't even imagine right now, which he calls kingdom. And kingdom, as defined Hebraically, is not going to be a place or a territory or something that's in the future. But the way Jesus is using it, it's right here, it's right now, it's the quality of life that we can have when we have broken through these kind of parochial and limiting uh, places of comfort and security and opened ourselves up to a greater presence. So that's the original challenge. He's trying to get us to break through. If you notice, every time Jesus is asked a question, he never answers it. Right. He always asks another question. He tells a story. He's trying to show his questioners, his listeners, his, his potential followers, that the way through is not by going from answer to answer or defining things so that you feel that you're risk-free, but from going to question to more pertinent question and opening yourself up. So it's a whole different way of looking at spiritual progress or spiritual formation. Yes. Uh, so uh, speaking of giving up things, I, I'm here on page eight. Uh, you talk about, uh, like, well, Rick, you quote Richard Rohr, which automatically gets some points in my uh, book. Ah, that's good. I love Richard Rohr. Um, yeah, breathing underwater, all that. Okay. But I, I digress. Uh, you talk about fundamentalists. He talks about fundamentalists find this very hard to do. Um, you know that, and I actually had to look it up the other day because, um, I think I, I, that was my mindset before it was like, this is the way mm-hmm. God, God only functions this way. This is how I was. Um, this is what I learned in, well, in Bible college and in seminary. And so God's slow. I, I, I built this box for him and, um, I'll, I'll never forget. Cause my, my sister, as I was a systematic theology, uh, major, that's what I majored in, uh, in, in seminary. And so I was just as, as much as can be, this is, I've got God figured out. How do you find uh, God typically breaking out of that box for, for people um, with, you know, cause if that's Jesus challenge is really stop putting God in a box. Um, how do you find people have really found freedom from that type of mindset? <laughs> Here's the thing. As soon as you think you've got God all figured out, you're as far from him as yeah. you can possibly be. Right. Um, this, is the, this is the age-old uh, difficulty with things of faith. Here in the West, especially, I mean, it, it's, it permeates all cultures and, and all times. But here in the West, especially in the modern West, in the last 500 years since the Enlightenment, 
we have replaced anything that strikes of mysticism or mystery with science and with facts and, and with certainty. That is the hallmark of Western culture, that if something is accurate, it's true, and it's only true if it's accurate. And we can clearly define this thing, put edges around it, put a pin through it, stick it yes. under it. All of that idea. And somehow we have translated that over to our theology as well. If we can just understand God right, if we can interpret the scriptures exactly right, then everything is going to fall into place. And we have replaced faith with certainty. We have said to ourselves that faith is certainty. If we are doubting, we no longer have faith because we are not sold out to the certainty that we can have if we just understand things correctly. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us away from. This idea that somehow we can understand this thing. Life is really about embracing and participating in mystery. It's embracing the paradox. It's embracing what can't be resolved. Because God, by definition, can never be anything that we can completely define. What we can do is we can experience God, this this presence of God we can experience and we can become convinced of what we believe is true but we can't transfer that to someone else that's theirs to experience it's theirs to become convinced of because there is no definition there is no certainty that can just be passed around from people to people what Richard Rohr was talking about in that quote is that the only way that we can describe this conviction that we have individually and experientially is through figurative language, through metaphor, um, through myth even. That's the only language that can point to the truth that we have experienced, that everyone experience when, experiences when they walk down this path. Um, but we can't define it. And that is a, that's another one of those mindsets. What we have to sell and give away, Jesus is saying, is that very notion that somehow we can think of all that. Not the way it works. Yes. Um, and that is all, that is all deep, deep stuff. Like it's hard. And I guess God in his grace at, at some point allows us to, okay, this person thinks they've arrived you know, me, um, like my, my elevator speech testimony is I, at one point I said, I will not listen to anybody unless they have at least an MDiv and it's gotta be, a and you have to be this gender. So God has delivered me from all sorts of uh, false beliefs. And um, I think that's when it started to all break down. Um, after that, he brought into my life a man who was a plumber. His name is Dan and uh, never went to seminary, never went to school. And, and God said, he laughed at my, he laughed at my little agreement. I made an agreement that I wouldn't listen to anybody that was, didn't have a degree. And uh, he brought a plumber into my life who loved the hell out of me, literally and um and then he asked me one day sitting in my driveway he said hey, ryan why did why did jesus die on the cross and i went seminary on him i said well for well, justification uh there's sanctification there's glorification there's position and i on and on and i said basically you know he died for me and he, he took me to matthew 26 and he took me to john 8 where we talked about before but jesus only did what pleased the father in matthew 26 he said um it doesn't look like he wanted to go. 
but he said in the end, not my will, but your will. So it sounds like Jesus went to the cross to please the father. And so at that moment, I was never the same. That's, that was like the first wall broke down and, and I just, oh my gosh. And so now I'm, I've been in the business of helping um, people, not, not only drug addicts and um, sex addicts and all kinds of uh, addictions, but um, really addicted to dogmatic theology. Ooh, there's a good one. Yes. Uh, no, and, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, Ryan, that this, this sounded so um, complex. It's only complex when we have to deconstruct the complexity that we've already built up in our lives. If we don't use the same tools that we use to build up this complex theology to deconstruct it again, it won't be seen as legitimate. But the whole point is to get past the complexity back to the simplicity. And that's where Jesus really lives. Why did he say that, that a child is the emblem of this kingdom? Why did he keep holding up that simplicity? That's the whole point. Once we have moved past everything that we think we can understand, then it just becomes pure experience again. It, it's like hearing a guitar play and you just love the sound of it. It's just vibrations in the air and it just moves you and does whatever it does. But as soon as you decide you want to learn to play, now it becomes very complex. Now you got to learn about the strings and about the instrument. And you got muscle memory and you got all these hours of practice and maybe music theology and, and, and not theology, music theory and all of that. But if you get out to the other side again, it's just you hear a sound in your head and it comes out through your fingers and it's just vibrations in the air. Our faith needs to work the same way. It needs to be simple. And we've got a guy at the effect, kind of like your plumber. His name is John, and we call him John the Baptist because he's got his hair down to here and it's steel gray. And he has had absolutely no church background whatsoever. He's never read the Bible. He's never experienced church. You know, he's a Vietnam veteran, and he's, he's just this guy who's been a hard drinker all his life. And he comes to the effect, finds sobriety, and he finds this expression of faith but it's not going through all of the usual filters. It's, to him, it's just pure love. He hears us talk the way you and I are talking, and he's just shaking his head. He's like, brother, it's just all about love. It's just yeah. love. Man. That is where we all need to get back to. And yeah. some of us have more unlearning to do than others, and there's complexity in that. Yep. It comes back to yeah. simple. <laughs> yes, getting, yes. So I think this is a question that everybody um really is dying to know inside whether they just found out now that oh my gosh i don't have a substance addiction i i have a i have a theology addiction i have i i don't like challenging the status quo i don't i I don't read books out of my you know comfort zone um what does it mean for someone to be free free in christ from addictions if you want to be free, the first thing that you have to become comfortable with is being vulnerable. Mm. See, that's really where Jesus is leading us. Our fear causes us to put up the defenses, whether they're theological, whether they're doctrinal, whether they're your local sports team, whatever it is that you put around yourself and, and, and move into that space as a place of safety, that's what you have to be willing to let go of. The certainty of thinking that you're right, the certainty of thinking that the group is your salvation somehow, and move back into a vulnerable place. Because until you're vulnerable, 
you can't find the humility and the connection that you have with everyone that you meet. Until we're willing to be vulnerable, we don't connect at all because we're all defensive, defended. We all have our, our walls up. To put the walls down, to open yourself right. back up and let people really see you is the scariest place that you'll ever be. But without that, you'll never experience the connection that Jesus calls kingdom. And so the first thing that we need to do is vulnerability. The first step of AA is to admit your powerlessness, which is an admission of vulnerability. The first beatitude is blessed are those who are poor in spirit, which translated from an Aramaic idiom means the same thing we're talking about, a, a sense of poverty, even if you're rich, a humbleness, uh, an openness of vulnerability. And so that is the prerequisite. That's the ticket in the door. And most of us are too afraid to allow ourselves to be vulnerable again. But that's the beginning of it. That's why Jesus always holds up the marginalized and the, the least powerful among us uh, as those who are emblems of kingdom. And what is the cross, the meaning of the cross? But the ultimate example of voluntary vulnerability, even under the worst circumstances, to remain vulnerable, to not try to defend self in order to express the greatest amount of love. Absolutely. You know, that, that's one word I've been, I've been hearing more and more over the past five years is that word vulnerability, and especially with the work of uh, Dr. Brene Brown on shame and vulnerability. I love it. So the first time I, I sat in a Celebrate Recovery meeting, um, I, I went with my wife. And I, I'm going for anger, right? Like that, that was the, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not beyond this. I, I'm, a, I'm an anger addict and I'm a draconian dad. And so, babe, let's get in there. And so Jeanette went for her own reasons. And uh, the person stood up there and it's a well-regimented um, program. If, if someone doesn't know about Celebrate Recovery and hi, my name is, you know, the person stand on stage. Hi, my name is, I forgot what their name was. Um, and I wrestle and I struggle with, sex addiction, loss. And then they're just listing. I mean, they're come talk about vulnerability. And I look at my wife, like, did they just say that? And <laughs> everybody was like, amen. And it was just this culture of, oh my gosh, there's no shame doesn't exist in this room. So I look at the model and I'm thinking to myself, isn't that what church is supposed to be like? like exactly what's going on here. And so the pastor gets up to and, and says, we have to be careful because it was a Monday night meeting in Virginia that, that we don't think we're better than the Sunday group. We're actually all the same. I love that. But how can Sunday morning turn from what it is now, which is I got my tie on. I got, I got my game face on. Hey, hey man, brother, how, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great that's the reality is that's where, you know, that's the status quo. That's where it is right now. How can we get to like the effect type or celebrate recovery type, or just even without the program's names, uh, a transparent and vulnerable culture where we walk in the door and there's no, there's no more shame. How do we, how do we get there, Dave? Well, that's a difficult prospect, especially when you're trying to change a church culture that's already established. At the effect, we have the, the advantage of starting as a recovery community. So we're already starting with people who recognize their own brokenness. And they were used to sharing about it, sharing about it in small groups and 12-step groups. And so that translated over. Um, I think it starts with, with the leadership down. 
if the person who is most visible, if the person who's in the pulpit is willing to talk about their own brokenness, willing to share their own vulnerability, their own failings, then it becomes a safer place for other people to be able to do the same. Um, the larger the group, the more inertia it has, the harder it is to start moving. A lot of this work gets done in smaller groups or even one-on-one, and then it starts to move out into the larger group. And as soon as you hit a certain critical mass with enough people who are willing to share and be vulnerable, then it's understood how safe this place is. For people to see someone share the way you're talking about and not be judged, to be still welcomed, to elicit the responses of others, to talk about their vulnerabilities, that says volumes about what kind of space this is and if people can be real or not. Um, but, but ultimately, it's, it's, it's gonna be a slow and gradual process. I think it needs to start with the leadership's modeling of, of their commitment to vulnerability, the willingness to let their group see them as they really are, and then to continue to work to instill that safety in every group, every event, everything that they do. It needs to be part of the mission statement. Uh, at, the, uh, at the effect, you know, we openly say that we are a group of imperfect people, uh, people that are recovering from something, who are not trying to lead anyone else, but to actually stand shoulder to shoulder and row, because we're all in the same boat, out of these waters together. A very different kind of attitude. But I think that's how it has to happen. Yes, and uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think uh, God is in a, he has a grace policy, and so they won't, they won't feel judgmental. And, and if people aren't even moving along as fast as I, because I would like this change to happen quick. God often reminds me how patient he was with me, and he is every day with me, and that it's going to be okay because he is in control. But you know, Ryan, it's even a little bit deeper than that because okay. uh, than what I just said, not what you said, but what I just said, in that if, if we're really going to do this, if we're going to be committed to vulnerability, then we have to recognize that our God is a humble God. Our God is an unassuming God. Our God is a God who will serve and even wash our feet. If we still see God at, at the top of a hierarchy on a throne way up there and don't see teach them servant leadership, then we won't recognize the fact that this is who our God is. And we are a reflection of that. If we're going to value these things that we want to see in our community, then we have to see and value in our God as well. And that is a major worldview shift. That's a mind bender. How the God of the universe is also the God who washes my feet. How do you process that? Well, you know what? Embrace the paradox, embrace the mystery, because there's no real way to figure it out. Oh, absolutely. I had you on mute. Um, like, like my simple child, childlike friends say, um, I'm not trying to be your discipler. I'm not trying to be your mentor. I'm, I'm just your friend. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to be your friend. 
and then uh, you can tell me anything. So with that, uh, this Zoom meeting will automatically shut off at 40 minutes. So I want to use the last few minutes. Um, anything else you want to talk about in, in, in daring to think again and, and what, who's your target audience and why should, why should my friends and family go out and uh, get a copy of this on Thursday? I think anyone who is feeling like there must be something more, anyone who is feeling like their faith has taken them to a plateau and they're not breaking through into anything new and there must be something more than there's just that, that sneaking suspicion way down deep that, um, that there's another there out there that you want to go to. Or maybe you've been really burned by church. Maybe you have already walked away from Jesus thinking that he is tied to this archaic superstitious system that doesn't have anything to offer me in this modern era. This is worth a second look. We don't need to leave Jesus to take an authentic spiritual journey, but we do need to leave what we think we know about Jesus to take an authentic spiritual journey. And that's not the same thing. This is an exploration of that. What does that look like? What does the shape of that journey look like? And what does it affect about the way we think about key issues in our faith and practice? And so for anybody, maybe you're just curious about what a, an ancient Eastern Jesus would look like and how that would impact things. This is the book for you. Absolutely. So what you're saying is Jesus is not an American from the West. Yeah. Absolutely not. He's a Jewish guy from the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. So lastly, um, the effect is located in San Juan. San Juan Capistrano, California. California and, and right in beautiful Orange County. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to visit the effect? Um, get a hold of you personally and, and pick, your, pick your brain about the book. Okay. Absolutely. We're, we're really open. We publish our phone numbers. And so everyone's welcome to call and check us out. Probably the easiest thing to do is go to our website, which is theeffect.org. T-H-E-E-F-F-E-C-T.org. And, and just start reading through. And there's, there's directions to our physical location. There's a contact page with phone numbers. Please call, ask questions. We just love to have a conversation. All right, brother. Uh, with four minutes left, I can't think of a better way to end uh, than to ask you, Pastor Dave, to, uh, to pray for us and the listeners and anybody who's, by, by God's uh, grace, able to listen to this right now. Could you pray for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Father, it is just so great to connect. We're, we're here to connect. You've made us to connect. Help us to lay down whatever fears, whatever blockages, whatever we think we know that stands between us and that more perfect connection with each other, with your spirit, that is the glue that holds us all together. Whatever we're going through, help us to see that you are still standing right in the midst of even the turmoil. And that if we just turn and face you, we will have a way through. Even though the circumstances don't change, we'll feel differently about them because we know that you are with us. Help us to let go of anything that blocks us from that connection with you. Help us to reach out to those people that we sense have something that can start to lead us in that direction. We're grateful, Father. Thank you for loving us with everything that you have. 
and never let us forget that we can only love because you love us first. Yes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay. Oh, Ryan, thanks so much for doing this and having me. I so appreciate it. And it's great to see your smiling face again. Yes. Can't wait till you come back. Likewise. Okay. I'll, I'll call you soon. Okay. Talk to you. Bye-bye.